the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. About eight minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blind is engineering and producing today's program. Today we're going to talk with Pastor Dudley Rutherford. His book is titled Compelled, The Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith. And that's uh, coming up in the five o'clock hour. Also, I want to let you know that to, uh, tomorrow, which is Tuesday, Pastor Rich Jones will join me in studio. We're going to talk about events that took place in Jerusalem today as the U.S. Embassy has now moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in a landmark move that uh, resulted in violence along the border of the Gaza Strip. We'll talk more about that um, today, but also with uh, Pastor Jones tomorrow as we not only look at the geopolitical implications of that decision, but also <clears throat> the biblical um, implications as well. So I'm looking forward to spending an extended time with Pastor Rich Jones on the program tomorrow. A couple things I just want to mention before we get started. Uh, first of all, I just want to say what a d- delight and thrill it was uh, at the hymn sing that took place this last Saturday at New Hope Church and then the weekend prior at Southwest Bible Church. Singing together uh, just the hymns of the faith was such a thrilling thing. I brought my mom last, uh, or I should was going to say last night, but I brought my mom on Saturday night and I could see she was just, she wept through many of those songs, and we talked on the drive home as she reflected on growing up in the church and the people that have uh, have now gone. It just was a wonderful, um, wonderful time, and if you ever get the opportunity to join us for a hymn sing, it's a great event, and I loved seeing that there were certainly lots of um, white hair, haired uh, people there, but there were also very young people there, and to see that they knew the lyrics to the hymn, I mean, they're, they're being projected, but they knew the songs, and that was uh, very thrilling to me as well. Also, just I hope you had a wonderful Mother's Day, uh, as that was the celebration we all engaged in uh, on Sunday as well. Well, some of the developing stories, the United States officially opened its embassy in Jerusalem five months after President Trump recognized the holy city as Israel's capital. And this after a string of presidents, beginning with Clinton and a um, requirement of that was passed by Congress in the 90s that Jerusalem is the capital and the embassy would be moved there. Also, new fissures have sparked more evacuations in Hawaii and rising fears about the uh, volcano there. The U.S. and China are scheduled to negotiate in Washington after months of trade tensions. And President Trump challenged countries to change how we think about terror following the latest attack linked to the Islamic State in France. And a family of suicide bombers carried out an attack on um, Policide headquarters in Indonesia the day after coordinated attacks on three city churches, authorities say. Hope we are continuing to pray for the persecuted church. Well, Israel's government prepared enthusiastically to open the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem with a gala party at the foreign ministry that included President Trump's daughter Ivanka, her husband Jared Kushner, and other American VIPs. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told revelers that Trump's December declaration recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital was the right thing to do. He said, thank you, Mr. Trump, for your bold decision. Thank you for making the alliance between Israel and the United States stronger than ever. The Prime Minister said Trump's decision recognized 
a 3,000-year Jewish connection to Jerusalem and the truth that Jerusalem would be Israel's capital under any future peace deal. Uh, Judge Janine Pirro said of the events that uh, President Trump sent the world a message in recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, not one that all of them embraced. We'll talk more about that later. Um, And as the events were taking place, Israel not only braced for an historic celebration, but also violence as the U.S. Embassy moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now, essentially what happened was there's a consulate there in Jerusalem, and they've cleared out a space for the embassy, and they'll build a structure presumably at some point in the future. But all of the United States business will be done from that location rather than Tel Aviv. Also, new fissures have um, opened up on Hawaii's big island, bringing a total of 19 spewing bits of bright red lava several hundred feet in the air and escalating fears of violent explosions to come more than a week after Kilauea, one of the world's most active volcanoes, erupted. While Hawaii's civil defense officials said they went door to door on Sunday, waking people up and telling them to evacuate. At least 37 structures, including 27 homes, have been destroyed since the eruptions began. The lava has covered more than 17 acres. Acres of land. The Hawaii National Guard is prepared to use ground convoys and helicopters to help evacuate hundreds of residents that might be stuck in the southeast corner of Hawaii's Big Island should Kilauea make it impossible for them to get out. And they're urging people um, to do so now, at least those in the path of uh, the volcano. Um, it stokes fears as well of West Coast eruptions uh, that may be linked to this one. And negotiators from the U.S. and China are scheduled to meet in Washington today, where after months of trade tensions, Beijing is said to be open to purchasing a wider array of U.S. goods and services. President Trump has insisted that the countries reduce the $370 billion trade deficit with China by $200 billion. Officials from Beijing are expected to, to um, be armed with a list of items that will offer a, to they will offer rather to import from the U.S. to meet that goal. The Wall Street Journal reported China is likely to uh, offer increasing its uh, purchase of aircraft, auto, natural gas, and some agricultural commodities, according to the director of the Cato Institute's Herbert Stifel Center for Trade Policy Studies. And President Trump tweeted on Sunday night, changes to our thought process on terror must be made. That was following the latest attack linked to the Islamic State in France after less than two months of calm. At some point, countries will have to open their eyes and see what is really going on. This kind of sickness and hatred is not compatible with a loving, peaceful and successful country, he wrote. A 20-year-old Frenchman from Chechnya rampaged through a festive uh, Paris neighborhood Saturday evening, slashing passersby with a knife, investigators said. The man identified uh, as uh, Kamatza... Azimov, or something like that, killed one person and wounded four others in a festive area near Paris' old opera house. Police shot him to death as he charged them. The Paris attacker apparently pledged allegiance to ISIS in a video. And authorities in Indonesia uh, today said that a family, including children, carried out a suicide attack on a police headquarters in the country's second largest city. A day after members of another family launched coordinated suicide bombings on three city churches that killed at least eight people. A girl about eight years old was with the two attackers on a motorcycle and survived being thrown by a blast at the um, Surabaya police headquarters. Uh, the, uh, the national police chief says the attack killed four perpetrators, six civilians, four officers were wounded. The attacks have been aimed at the country's Christian minority. And on this day in 1973, Skylab, the United States' first space station, is launched. And in 61, the Freedom Riders bus, um, it's firebombed near Anniston, Alabama. And the civil rights protesters are beaten by an angry mob. 
1961. Wasn't that long ago. 1948, according to the current era calendar, the independent state of Israel is proclaimed in Tel Aviv by David Ben-Gurion, who becomes its first prime minister. Harry S. Truman, our president, immediately recognized the new nation. A strategic day for the nation of Israel. And, of course, the moving of the embassy was a strategic day for the United States. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res and Liberty Coin and Currency. Also, I failed to mention that this week we're going to be giving away a family four-pack of tickets. Actually, it's family four-packs of tickets uh, all this week to the Clean Comedy Night with Jeff Allen. That's coming up on Saturday, June the 16th at East Hill Church in Gresham. So listen for your opportunity to win. By the way, it will be this hour of today's program. Again, Jeff Allen, family four-pack of tickets. It's going to be fun. Well, um, moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem uh, was a big deal, but it certainly was not one anyone should be surprised by. All four uh, candidates who became president in previous years, beginning in the 90s, had promised to do just that. In fact, in 1992, Bill Clinton proclaimed, Jerusalem is still the capital of Israel and must remain an undivided city accessible to all. Likewise, George Bush campaigned on moving the embassy. As soon as I take office, I will begin the process of moving the U.S. embassy to the city Israel has chosen as its capital, he said in 2000. And then running in 2008, Barack Obama also promised to move the embassy. I continue to say that Jerusalem will be the capital of Israel, and I have said that before, and I will say it again. And Jerusalem will remain the capital of Israel, and it must remain undivided. Well, Trump, too, promised on the campaign trail to move the embassy. We will move the American embassy to the eternal capital of the Jewish people, Jerusalem. There was cheering and applause. Therefore, I have determined that it is time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, while previous presidents have made the major campaign promise they failed to deliver. They kept issuing waivers. Well, today he delivered. Uh, He says of himself, I've judged this course of action to be the best in, in the best interests of the United States of America and the pursuit of peace between Israel and the Palestinians, removing this issue off the table. This is a long overdue step to advance the peace process and to work toward lasting agreement. Today, America's Israeli embassy officially reopened in Jerusalem. Well, what will happen long term, we don't yet know, but the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem officially opened today, coinciding with the 70th anniversary of the creation of the modern state of Israel, and one day after Jerusalem Day, the 51st anniversary of Israel annexing East Jerusalem, which is home to holy sites for Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Well, President Trump followed through on a promise first made by the U.S. Back in 1995, by the U.S., president after president signed waivers citing security concerns over moving the embassy from Tel Aviv, succumbing to fear that the Palestinians would respond with violence, which under the direction of Hamas, they did, thus undermining any already fictitious peace process. Why does the embassy location matter? Well, although Trump has said his declaration does not set the final border of the city, 
His recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital has been perceived by both Israel and the Palestinians as taking Israel's side in the most sensitive issue in the conflict. The Palestinians claim East Jerusalem as the capital of a future state. Most of the world does not recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital as a result. Well, not surprisingly, the Palestinians did respond with violence. Terrorists have denied Israel's right to exist from the moment it was formed. The radical Muslims have been slaughtering Jews for centuries, and unfortunately, the violence today resulted in at least 52 Palestinians killed, including what the Israelis called three armed terrorists uh, aiming to uh, plant a bomb near the Gaza border fence. Now, not all were terrorists. Some were protesters, but I'm just saying there were three identified. Uh, Meanwhile, just a couple of weeks after French President Emmanuel Macron was glad-handing Trump at the White House state dinner, he was busy leading the charge to issue an official European Union statement criticizing the U.S. embassy relocation. Hungary, the Czech Republic, and Romania blocked it. The latter two are looking to move their embassies to Jerusalem as well. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu promised or rather pronounced that recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital is the right thing to do. And as for the future of the peace process, peace will be illusory until Israel's enemies accept their right to exist. And that has not yet um, happened. Now, I thought it was very interesting. Jeff Jacoby writing on um, the the Palestinian Nakba, which is um, the Arab word for catastrophe. Um, putting it into historic context. And again, we'll go into this greater in greater detail tomorrow, but I thought what he had to say about it was rather interesting. Uh, again, he writes, 70 years ago this month, on May 14th, 1948, the state of Israel proclaimed its independence. The next day, a story in the New York Times, Jews in grave danger in all Muslim lands, reported that Jewish communities throughout the Arab world were under siege. Jews were starting to be fired from their jobs, terrorized into fleeing. Across the region, said the Times, the stage is being set for a tragedy of incalculable proportions. Now, most people don't remember that. That was an exa- that was no exaggeration. In the months that followed the birth of Israel, a birth uh, midwifed by the United Nations, but violently opposed by Arab governments, hundreds of thousands of Jews became refugees. Within the first year of Israel's existence, once vibrant Jewish communities in the Middle East and North Africa were decimated. In 1945, there were nearly one million Jews living in Arab lands. Today, there are almost none. For the Palestinians, May 14, 1948, is remembered as a Nakba, Arabic for catastrophe. The flight of 700,000 Arab refugees from Israel during the war that followed the creation of the Jewish state. The fighting was launched by the Arab League, whose armies invaded Israel within hours of its birth. The League's Secretary General, Azam Pasha, had declared that the Jews um, would be wiped out, would be wiped out rather, in a war of extermination and momentous massacre. But the fledgling state somehow survived, and hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were displaced instead. Well, over the years, enormous attention has been paid to the issue of the Palestinian refugees. Even after seven decades, the topic remains raw and emotional. Emotional. It is frequently said that there can be no lasting solution to the Arab-Israeli conflict until the plight of the Palestinian refugees is settled. To this day, the Palestinian Authority and Hamas claim a right to return for the original refugees and their descendants. More than 1.5 million Palestinians live in dozens of refugee camps administered by the United Nations. Their predicament intensified by the refusal of every Arab country, save Jordan, to grant them citizenship, which is somewhat puzzling. The Jewish Nakba of the 1940s is now largely forgotten. Yet in terms of the number of people affected, property lost, history erased, the catastrophe that befell the Jews of the Arab world dwarfed what happened to the Palestinians. Jews had been living in the Arab lands since time immemorial. 
uh, in countries like Egypt, Iraq, and Libya. Jewish communities flourished centuries before the advent of Islam. Jewish life was integral to Middle East society, which drew nourishment from some of the world's most ancient cultural roots. But with the rebirth of Jewish sovereignty in in Palestine... Um, anti-Semitism fury erupted across the region and those roots were ripped out. As the UN in 1947 debated whether to adopt the partition plan authorized, uh, authorizing a Jewish state, Arab leaders had warned that violence against Jews would be uncontrollable. Addressing the UN General Assembly, the Egyptian ambassador threatened the massacre of a large number of Jews if the partition plan were adopted. His menacing words were echoed by Iraq's foreign minister. Let a Jewish state come into existence, he said, and there would be no restraint the masses in the Arab world. Well, in reality, the waves of expulsion and expropriation that ensued were orchestrated less by Arab mobs than by Arab governments, which passed harsh new laws stripping Jews of their property and civil rights. In time, some 900,000 Jews were dispossessed or banished. Two-thirds of them made their way to Israel, which welcomed the refugees as new citizens. Many arrived with little more than the clothes on their back. They had no choice but to rebuild their lives from scratch while dealing with the trauma of upheaval and shattering loss as best they could. Fortunately for them, that's what they were expected to do. Unlike Palestinian refugees, the Jews expelled from Arab countries were not encouraged to keep believing that they would return and reclaim their lost homes. They were not kept in refugee camps for decades or denied the right to become citizens of countries that took them in. The grievous psychological injuries suffered by the Jewish refugees were allowed to heal. Not so the Palestinians. Their cynical leaders sought to keep their wounds festering, the better to exploit them as a political and propaganda tool against Israel. Jews and Palestinians weren't the only refugees in the 1940s. Terror, poverty, and persecution put tens of millions of people to flight during and after World War II. Vast numbers of ethnic Germans, for example, were expelled after the war from the Soviet Union, Poland, and Czechoslovakia. The partition of the Indian subcontinent displaced 14 million men, women, and children. Driven by terrible circumstances, countless human beings had to run for their lives and start over in a strange land, as countless human beings from Syria to Myanmar still do. Then, as now, the best hope for refugees lay in resettlement, not in dreams of return. The Palestinian refugees' worst catastrophe wasn't displacement, a faith... Uh, they had shared with many, uh, much of mankind, it was being fed a lie that the clock will be turned back and the last 70 years undone. The grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the 1948 refugees, whether they live in Lebanon or Jordan, in America or the West Bank, are not refugees. They are at home. That is how it should. Uh, they should think of themselves. That is how they should insist that the world think of them. No one is going back to the 1940s. Once Palestinians stop believing otherwise, the Nakba will be at an end. Well, that's an, certainly an optimistic view of what could happen, but it doesn't seem very likely at this point. Anyway, Jeff Jacoby, an interesting perspective on the events that uh, occurred uh, prior to the establishment of the nation of Israel at the time it was declared and since. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. <coughs> We're back 37 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as promised, we want to give away a family four-pack of tickets to Clean Comedy Night with Jeff Allen. That's coming up on Saturday, June the 16th at East Hill Church in Gresham, 7 o'clock p.m. Doors will open right about 6.30. We'd love to give a family four-pack of tickets away to you. All you need to do is call 
503-786-9390. By the way, we're going to give those tickets to the third caller. 503-786-9390. There's enough for you and your family or you and some friends or whatever uh, group you want to uh, bring together, but it's going to be a great night. Jeff Allen is funny, and if you need to laugh, this will be the place to be. Again, the Clean Comedy Night with Jeff Allen, Saturday, June the 16th at East Hill Church in Gresham. 503-786-9390. Caller number three. All righty then. Well, North Korea has scheduled a ceremony to dismantle its nuclear testing site on the 23rd through the 25th of this month, ahead of the president's summit with leader Kim Jong-un next month. Well, North Korea's foreign minister said Saturday that all the tunnels at the country's northeastern testing ground will be destroyed by explosion and that um, observation and research facilities and ground-based testing units will also be removed. The dramatic and symbolic event is part of the Hermit Kingdom's pledge to discontinue nuclear tests. While some believe that it was already uh, rendered useless by uh, nuclear tests that had already been done, and so this is just a formality, and others are suggesting while this is a wonderful gesture, there must be much, much more to confirm that its nuclear program is coming to an end. Well, the Nuclear uh, Weapons Institute and other concerned institutions uh, are taking technical measures to dismantle the northern nuclear test ground of the DPRK in order to ensure transparency of discontinuance of the nuclear tests. That's the announcement that the DPRK is, uh, and which is an acronym, as you know, for the North Korea um, Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Well, the North said that uh, they plan to invite journalists from the United States and South Korea, China, Russia and Britain to inspect the dismantling process. Analysts say that the closure of the uh, site is mostly symbolic, doesn't represent a material step toward denuclearization. The announcement comes after the president said he would hold a summit with Kim in Singapore on the 12th of June. It's going to be the first meeting ever between a sitting U.S. president and the leader of North Korea. Well, Kim had revealed plans to shut down the nuclear test site during his summit with South Korean President Moon Jae-in last month. Following the um, summit, Moon's office said Kim was willing to disclose the process to international experts, But the North statement Saturday didn't include any mention about allowing experts on the site, just journalists. On Friday, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in North Korea said rather North Korea can look forward to a future brimming with peace and prosperity if it agrees to quickly give up its nuclear weapons. At a ruling party meeting last month, North Korea had already announced that it has suspended all tests of nuclear devices and ICBMs and the plan to close the nuclear testing ground. Now, a testing ground is different from where you produce the nuclear weapons or where they're stored. So, again, a nice gesture, but not enough. Still, the closure of the site could be a useful uh, precedent for Washington and Seoul as they uh, proceed with nuclear negotiations with Pyongyang. Now that North Korea has accepted in principle that agreements should be verified, U.S. negotiators should uh, hold them to this standard for any subsequent agreement. That's a senior defense analyst for the Federation of American Scientists. It will make it more difficult for Kim Jong-un to deny inspections now that he's placed them on the table. Well, North Korea's six known nuclear tests have taken place in um, a location in the northeastern part of North Korea, where a, a system of tunnels have been dug under Mount Mantap, according to Reuters. And that apparently is the site that we're looking at, that um, they're suggesting is going to be dismantled. Meanwhile, National Security Advisor John Bolton on Sunday said that the United States will reimpose the same level of sanctions on Iran that were in place before the Obama administration entered into the uh, Iran nuclear deal. 
Well, CNN host Jake Tapper asked uh, Bolton about President Trump's decision for the United States to leave the deal and what role sanctions would now play. The consequences of the United States getting out of it uh, is to reimpose all American sanctions as they were before the deal came into effect. And I think what we've uh, seen is that Iran's economic condition is really quite shaky, so the effect here could be dramatic, Bolton said. He added that Iran will not uh, be able to re- to wreak the same kind of chaos it had before in the Middle East and that it will have greater difficulty now to sell oil. Well, Tapper challenged Bolton on the United States sanctions not having the same effect due to being the only country to leave the agreement. But still, he said, the United States imposing economic sanctions is a far cry from the United States and China and Russia and Europe imposing economic sanctions. Tapper said the U.S. essentially is um, at least uh, as of now going it alone. How will that force Iran back to the table? Well, Bolton said uh, we're not going it alone. Uh, We have the support of Israel. We have the support of the Arab oil producing monarchies and many other. And the consequences of American sanctions go well beyond goods shipped by American countries because of our technology uh, licenses to many other countries and businesses around the world. Keeping in mind that there was no uh, Middle Eastern country that supported the Iran deal. Well, Trump, uh, President Trump announced that the United States would withdraw from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Um, often referred to as the Iran deal. Iranian leaders threatened harsh reprisals against the United States following that decision to abandon the deal and reimpose a series of harsh sanctions on Iran. And, of course, we'll continue to... um uh, to follow what's happening. Meanwhile, Arnold Allert says this about the goings-on in Washington from one administration to the next. He writes that for eight years, America endured a pen and phone president so thoroughly convinced of his own moral superiority that he viewed Congress as more of an impediment than a co-equal branch of government. And the same media that gushed over his courage, even now, the Washington Post is referring to the former president's disastrous appeasement of Iran as one of the one of his signature foreign policy achievements, is aghast that what can be done by executive fiat can be undone the same way. How bad was the Iran deal? Well, there was no deal. The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action is not a treaty or an executive agreement. It is not a signed document, stated a letter since um, sent in 2015 from the State Department to then-Representative Mike Pompeo. Thus, the notion that Barack Obama's executive order was binding is absurd. How desperate was Obama to make any kind of deal? Well, the administration used the NSA to spy on Israel, coincidentally capturing conversations between anti-deal U.S. officials, Jewish American leaders, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes created a media echo chamber knowing uh, of no-nothing journalists duped into disseminating administration lies about the Iranian regime's nature, and as columnist Eli Lake reminds us, just days before the deal was implemented, Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps boarded a U.S. Navy vessel and briefly detained U.S. sailors who had accidentally drifted into Iranian waters. In case the point uh, point was missed, the sailors were videotaped on their knees with their hands clasped behind their heads. The point was missed. Kerry called the subsequent release of the sailors a testament to the critical role that diplomacy plays in keeping our country safe, secure, and strong. Well, President Trump has ended this um, uh, this practice. More important, he is free to pursue that which is uh, Obama refused to meddle with in 2009, even as Iranian dissidents were being beaten and killed 
regime change. Well, toward that end, Trump has circulated a three-page white paper among National Security Council officials that seeks to reshape longstanding American foreign policy toward Iran by emphasizing an explicit policy of regime change, according to the Washington Free Beacon. Now, lest you think that means military action, it goes on. The document de-emphasizes U.S. military intervention, instead focusing on a series of moves to embolden an Iranian population that has increasingly grown angry at the ruling regime for its heavy investments in military adventurism across the region. The mullahs are sitting on a populist powder keg. In addition to unpopular adventurism, Iran is facing an acute water shortage precipitated by bad water management policies and aging infrastructure. The regime's promise to spread the nuclear deal's wealth to its people has been broken, leaving the nation with an 11 percent unemployment rate. While the Revolutionary Guard, who runs Iran's ballistic missile program and answers solely to the Ayatollah Ali Khomeini, controls between 15 and 30 percent of the economy. The government has also banned Telegram, an encrypted personal messaging app used by half the country that Iran's ICT minister, Mohammad Javad Azari Jaroma, insisted was encouraging hateful conduct, use of Molotov cocktails, armed uprisings and social unrest. Well, Lake envisions a three-pronged strategy for regime change. First, Iranians need to take charge of their own revolution, which requires Trump to refrain from picking leaders, arming particular factions, or precipitating an invasion. Second, credible channels of communication that abet domestic resistance but refrain from empowering outside groups seeking to impose their own agenda on such a movement must be established. And third, Trump must expand his list of demands beyond nuclear perimeters. Lake suggests trying to remove... Uh, trying the removal, rather, of sanctions to the removal of office of a supreme leader from the nation's constitution. All good, but columnist David French adds, as essential ingredients to the mix, insisting we must beat Iran on the battlefield, not by invading or declaring war, but instead by ensuring the endurance and ultimate victory of our allies on the proxy conflicts raging across the Middle East. And he reminds us why. Arguably, no nation in recent history has taken more deadly action against the United States without a corresponding American response. He asserts that no wonder the regime believed it could dictate terms to the Obama administration. They can't dictate terms to Trump. If the regime continues its nuclear aspirations, it will have bigger problems than it has ever had before, the president asserted during his withdrawal announcement. In response, Iranian parliamentary members burned a paper American flag and chanted death to America. We've heard it before. Anyone who believes such contempt for America and its leaders hasn't been the Iranian government's position for decades is as delusional as perhaps the the last effort in the Iranian deal and the cabal of uh, European leaders who also believe evil should be appeased, especially if it uh, accrues to the, U- to the EU's globalist profit making. And that goes double for mostly congressional hypocrites who opposed Obama's deal, but now oppose Trump's uh, rescinding of it. Neville Chamberlain's Munich Agreement in 1938, Bill Clinton's agreed framework in 1994 were both sold as grand achievements in b- diplomacy. Both were catastrophic failures, yet both were ignored by an equally clueless administration, led by an arc of history narcissist who was ultimately forced to admit that the Iran deal only delayed Iran's ability to acquire nuclear weapons and would require the United States to step back as they develop them at some point in the future. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. 4.55 is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. There are a lot of really important decisions to be announced by the Supreme Court over the next several weeks, but one was announced today. The court today struck down a federal law that bans sports gambling. It was a sweeping decision that could soon lead to legalized sports betting in dozens of states. The Supreme Court ruled 6-3 to three to strike down the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act. The decision marked a defeat for the federal government and sports organizations who fought to uphold the current ban in most states. Well, the 1992 law was uh, uh, had barred gambling on football, basketball, baseball, and other sports, with some exceptions, like allowing people to wager on a single game only in Nevada. The Supreme Court ruling now gives states the uh, go-ahead to legalize sports betting if they choose. Well, the legalization of sports gambling requires an important policy choice, but the choice is not ours to make. The opinion by Justice Samuel Alito read, Congress can, reg- can uh, regulate sports gambling directly, but, it is, uh, but if it elects to do so, each state is free to act on its own. Our job is to interpret the law Congress has enacted and decide whether it is consistent with the Constitution. The ruling said well, one research firm established before the ruling that if the Supreme Court were to strike down the law, 32 states would likely offer sports betting within five years. The court's decision came in a, a case from New Jersey, um, which was, has fought for years to legalize gambling on sports at its uh, casinos and racetracks in the states. More than a dozen states had supported New Jersey, which argued that Congress exceeded its authority when it passed the uh, 1992 law. New Jersey said the Constitution allows Congress to pass laws barring wagering on sports, but Congress can't require states to keep sports gambling prohibitions in place. All four major U.S. professional sports leagues, the NC2A and the federal government, had urged the court to uphold the federal law. In court, the NBA, NFL, NHL, Major League Baseball had argued that New Jersey's gambling expansion would hurt the integrity of their games. Outside um, court, however, leaders of all but the NFL have shown varying degrees of openness to legalizing sports gambling. Well, the American Gaming Association estimates that America's uh, Americans rather illegally wager about one hundred and fifty billion dollars on sports every year. That's billion with a B. The 1992 law was uh, at issue is the in uh, in the case bar states uh, authorized sports gambling with exceptions for Nevada, Montana. Oregon and Delaware, uh, states that had approved some form of sports wagering before the law took effect. Nevada is the only state where a person can wager on the results of a single game, though the law doesn't cover wagering between friends. The law also doesn't cover animal races, such as horse racing, which many states already allow. Well, New Jersey has spent years and millions of dollars in legal fees trying to legalize sports betting at its casinos, racetracks, and former racetracks. In 2012, with voters' support, New Jersey lawmakers passed a law allowing sports betting directly challenging the 1992 federal law which says states can't authorize by law sports gambling. The four major professional sports leagues and the NC2A sued, and the states lost in court. In 2014, New Jersey tried tried a different tactic by repealing laws prohibiting sports gambling at casinos and racetracks. It argued taking its laws off the books was different from authorizing sports gambling. The state lost again and then took the case to the Supreme Court that ruled today that, yes, states can, in fact, uh, allow for sports gambling. Well, coming up after the top of the hour, we're going to talk with Pastor Dudley Rutherford. He is the pastor of a 10,000-member church and the author of several books. His most recent is titled Compelled, The Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith. And for those who um, 
who are reluctant. This is a very practical book to, first of all, draw your attention to the scriptures and what they say about the privilege we have been given to share our faith and how to uh, deal with some of the fears that are natural in sharing something that may be um, uh, controversial in some circles may result in uh, being rejected um, as so many in scripture are. And as Jesus said, we should expect. So anyway, Pastor Dudley Rutherford will join us uh, at the bottom of the five o'clock hours. So we're looking forward to that. Also, I want to mention that Pastor Rich Jones is going to join me uh, tomorrow. We're going to talk about the events that took place in Israel today, primarily in Jerusalem, where the U.S. Embassy moved from Tel Aviv to the um, uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, it's really a U.S. consulate that was already there. Now the embassy is being housed in the same structure. Most people predicted that would take a year or two to build a structure, to find a location for that to happen. Well, the president decided it's going to happen. We're going to use a facility we already have for that purpose. And this was a major um, a major move by the United States. We'll talk with him more about not just the geopolitical implications of it, but also what biblical uh, perspective we might find from Scripture. So that's coming up tomorrow on the program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As I'm struggling to try to sound normal, as the pressure in my head shifts from one sentence to the next. So I apologize for my uh, my voice. I sound a little more manly, I think, than normal. Well, in other news, there are fresh fears that have been raised over the role of mobile phones in brain cancer after new evidence revealed rates of a malignant type of tumor have doubled in the last two decades. Now, doubled sounds ominous, but if we're talking about three and now there are six, it makes a difference. Charities and scientists have called on the government to heed long-standing warnings about the dangers of radiation after a fresh analysis revealed a more alarming trend in cancers than previously thought. However, the new study published in the Journal of Public Health and Environment has stoked controversy among scientists, with some experts saying the disease could be caused by other factors. The research team set out to investigate the rise of an aggressive and often fatal type of brain t- uh, tumor known as uh, glioblastoma multiforma. Well, they analyzed 79,241 malignant brain tumors over 21 years. So this is a pretty large study over a long period of time, finding that cases of GBM, which is the abbreviation, in England have increased from around 1,250 a year in 1995 to just under 3,000. The study is the first recent effort of its kind to analyze in detail the incidence of different types of malignant tumors. The scientists at the Physicians Health Initiative for Radiation and Environment, or FIRE, uh, say the increase in GBM has still now been masked by the overall fall in incidence in other types of brain tumors. So we're talking about a particular uh, type. Last night, the group said the um, increasing rate of tumors in the frontal temporal lobe raises the suspicion that mobile and cordless phones, uh, phone use rather, may be promoting gliomas. Well, Professor Dennis Henshaw said, and I'm quoting, our finding il- findings illustrate the need to look more carefully at and to try and explain the mechanisms behind these cancer trends instead of brushing the casual factors under the carpet and focusing only on cures. Well, that's a great idea to at least explore whether or not there 
can be discovered a link. In 2015, the European Commission Scientific Committee on Emerging and Newly Identified Health Risks concluded that overall, the epidemiological studies on cell phone radio frequency electromagnetic radiation exposure do not show an increased risk of brain tumors or of other cancers of the head and neck region. Well, this was despite a study published the previous year indicating long-term mobile and cordless phone use triples the risk of brain cancer, although this contradicted other similar studies. In other words, we don't really know. According to Cancer Research UK, it is unlikely that mobile phones increase the risk of brain tumors. However, we do not know enough to completely rule out a risk. However, the organization cautions that because phones are a relatively recent invention, it may take many more years until the data is sufficient to make more robust conclusions. Responding to the new research, um, uh, an emeritus uh, professor of applied statistics at the Open University said the significance of the trend may be less clear, uh, rather clear cut than the, the research group claims. But he added this research does point to something that may well be worth investigating further. Other studies in other parts of the world have found similar increases. It's important, though, to understand that this new paper did not examine any new data at all about potential causes for the increase. The new study lists uh, casual factors aside from mobile phone use that may explain the GBM trend, including radiation from x-rays, CT scans, and the fallout from atomic bomb tests in the atmosphere. Well, in other words, we really don't know much more now than we did then. And at least there is a growing consensus that, yeah, we need to look into this uh, more thoroughly. Well, imagine your son or daughter is applying for medical school. You've watched as they grew up and got good grades in school. You taught them to stand up for what they believe, and you've worked to get them a good financial shape for getting through college and medical school. Then their medical college admissions test, or MCAT as it's called, score comes back, and it's low. Well, too low for the best medical schools in the country. Oh, they might get into a second-tier school, but the best internships and residences will likely be out of reach. One reason that score might be low is because the Association of American uh, American Medical Colleges is rigging the test. Even if students do score high on the rigged test, the AAMC is working on other ways to filter out, shall we say, deplorable applicants. Well, the Patriot Post is arguing that there's an effort to kick the right out of medical and law schools. The Weekly Standard says that the process has been underway for a while, largely through the efforts of the AAMC's president, Dr. Daryl Kirch. In essence, Kirch wants to kick conservatives out of medical school, or at least those who don't become what Dennis Prager calls American uh, Moronis. Well, the, uh, the goal is simple. Doctors are among the most trusted professions in the country. And if conservatives are excluded from the profession, then the left has uh, yet another powerful platform. We already seen public health used as a justification for gun control. There were dissenting voices then, but what happened if the dissenting voices are screened out? Or think of this. If pro-lifers are screened out from even being admitted to medical school, then how will crisis pregnancy centers function beyond counseling? Well, the effort exclude, to exclude conservatives is also extending to the legal profession. The American Bar Association has proposed a rule, Model Rule 8.4G, that seems to be tailor-made for the use against conservatives, ostensibly 
Uh, It prohibits harassment based on race, sex, religion, national origin, ethnicity, disability, age, sexual orientation, gender identity, marital status, or socioeconomic status. Now, nobody should be harassed for any of those reasons. I think we'd all agree on that. But it all comes down to defining harassment. When some regularly accuse those who disagree with them of racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and so on, among other things, it's easy to see how this rule can be misused against any conservative would-be attorney who speaks out about a controversial issue. The implications reach even farther, however. If the worst aspects of college speech codes end up in the uh, canon of legal ethics, what conservatives uh, would uh, would go into law as a profession? Rule 8.4G is a kill shot aimed at the next generation of conservative lawyers. Many states are voting down this rule for now, but it may only be a delaying action. The sad fact of the matter is that uh, some clear are, uh, are clearly moving to hang signs saying conservatives need not apply. This is an attack that deserves the um, disinfection of sunlight, but Congress and state legislatures need to act as well to outlaw discrimination and any similar group based on um, uh, political affiliation and expression and perhaps even to remove them as gatekeepers to the medical and legal professions, referring to the ABA, the AAMC, the AMA and others. Um, conservatives must act or it may be that uh, they are not permitted or welcomed into certain professions. Well, the family of Tony Kim, one of the uh, three American prisoners released on Wednesday by North Korea, is thanking God and President Trump for being freed from captivity. Kim, previously a professor of Pyongyang University of Science and Technology, was detained by North Korean authorities in 2017 on charges of committing criminal acts of hostility against Uh, rather aimed at overturning the DPRK. Well, after a year of captivity, he is finally on his way home, actually home now, along with two other American men held prisoner there, Kim Dong-chul and Kim Hak-sung. We are grateful for the release of our husband and father, Tony Kim, and the other two American detainees. We want to thank all of those who have worked toward and contributed to his return home. We also want to thank the president for engaging directly with North Korea, the family said in a statement. Mostly, we thank God for Tony's safe return. The statement concluded, we appreciate all of the support and prayers of friends and even strangers during this challenging year. You are dear to our hearts. We ask that you continue to pray for the people of North Korea and for the release of all who are still being held. Thank you. We mentioned last week that while these three Americans have been released and we rejoice at that fact, there are still hundreds of thousands of North Koreans, many of whom are Christians who are uh, currently being held. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo Uh, He made his second trip to North Korea on Wednesday to lay the groundwork for the president's unprecedented summit meeting with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, as well as secure the release of these three American prisoners held in North Korea for um, one as long as two years, others for a year. The president announced the release of the prisoners in the morning on Wednesday, also saying the date and place of the summit was set. My family and I long to make contact with my dad, Sol Kim, Tony Kim's son, said at the time uh, in February. We want to tell him that he's uh, soon going to be a grandfather, something he had no idea uh, was, uh, was happening. Upon returning to the U.S., Kim will be able to see his grandchild for the very first time. And again, this is a grandchild he didn't know was coming. Finally, the church in England is torn over plans by the Episcopal Church in the United States to efface the term husband and wife, as well as references to procreation from its marriage liturgy. The change is meant to make the church's marriage ceremonies more gay friendly. Um, uh, 
Homosexual and lesbian Episcopalians have complained that the language of the current liturgy is offensive and exclusionary. You know, the language that's borrowed from the scriptures. The move prompted a critical response from the Church of England Secretary General William Nye last October, urging the uh, Episcopal Church of the United States to reconsider. The letter threatened to cut ties with the U.S. Church if it adopts the plan gender neutral, replacing the current wording in its Book of Common Prayers. The new service uh, removes the phrase, the union of husband and wife, and replaces it with the union of two people, according to a report in the UK Telegraph. It also replaces the section, which talks, uh, takes, rather, talks about part of God's intention for marriage being for the procreation of children, which is not possible in same-sex relations, with the phrase, for the gift of children, to make it more relevant for same-sex couples who may wish to adopt. Continue to follow the story to see what the... Um, Church of England does in response to the U.S. Episcopal Church's decision to change the language for the marriage liturgy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In just a moment, we're going to talk with Pastor Dudley Rutherford. He's the author of Compelled, the Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as the world becomes more hostile toward things of God, toward the gospel, uh, many Christians are resisting telling others about the best thing that ever happened to them. And that seems a bit peculiar, does it not? Well, in his new book, Compelled, The Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith, published by Worthy, my next guest, Pastor Dudley Rutherford, he shares his earnest desire for each and every believer to be equipped and bold in sharing their faith. And he provides practical methods and application to effectively articulate the message of the gospel. He offers overwhelming motivation to take up the call of evangelism and takes the mystery out of how to do it, to share one's faith in the postmodern world. Well, um, he's going to encourage you to pause for a moment and uh, silence the many distractions that compete for your time and attention. You'll hear the faint whisper, the gentle yet irresistible call in your spirit uh, to speak the truth in love. Well, Pastor Dudley Rutherford is the senior pastor of Shepherd Church, a 10,000 member congregation. And through the Lift Up Jesus television ministry, his sermons are broadcast on TV and radio nationwide. He's the founder of dreamofdestiny.org, a ministry designed to foster ethnic diversity within the Christian church. He's the author of Walls Fall Down, God Has an App for That, Unleashed, Romancing Royalty, and Proverbs in a Haystack. He has had uh, uh, distinction in speaking for several professional sports teams and has been featured chaplain or chapel rather speaker for the World Series. We're delighted to have him with us today to talk about his latest book simply titled Compelled, The Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith. Thank you so much for joining us, Pastor. Georgine, thank you so much. I'm so excited to spend a few moments with you and your listeners. Well, I think for many of us who are insecure about sharing our faith, we're we're afraid of being rejected. The word compel doesn't really resonate when we're talking about evangelism. Why do you think that's the case? Well, uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, you know, we're we're always afraid, I think, of rejection. There's always that feeling, or if I share my faith, or if I invite someone to church, or can I talk to you about Jesus, that we're going to be rejected. And so that's a very legit fear. We also have a fear where we're uh, we're afraid that we won't have the right words to speak. They won't come out of our mouth. We're afraid we might get asked the question that we don't have the answer for. And then, of course, we're just distracted by the daily mundane task of life that we fail to take the time. 
And so the the most important thing we've been called to do, which is to talk to people, to share our faith, the great commandment to go in the whole world and uh, lift up Jesus and, and uh, make disciples, that gets shoved way back on the back burner for all of those reasons. And I uh, put this book together just to help people overcome some of those fears and to motivate people to move beyond the distractions of life and to seriously look at people in light of eternity that is a very, very, very long time, and we're on this earth for a very, very short period of time, and to use our time wisely in trying to communicate the gospel with as many people as we possibly can as long as God gives us time here on this earth. Absolutely. And I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that there will be those who reject the message. We see that throughout Scripture. Jesus warned us we're going to see some trouble. But as uh, as your book points out, we're talking about the best thing that ever happened to us. And to be unwilling to share that uh, says a little bit about our, our concern and regard for others, um, uh, which I think should be concerning. Yeah, you know, I, it's like if someone invented the cure for cancer. I mean, if you had the cure, you had it in a bottle, and you discovered it, and you uh, used it on yourself, and you were cured, and you failed to share that that antidote with the millions of people around the world that are suffering for, from cancer, what what kind of a person would you be to take that for yourself and not be willing to share it? And our... What we've experienced is the love of Christ, His grace, His mercy. Our sins have been forgiven. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit within mm-hmm. us. We have the assurance of everlasting life. We go through life knowing that God is with us and that when we die, we get to go to heaven. We've experienced His grace. We've, we've tasted it. And for us to look at the world and to know that most people do not know Jesus Christ and to not share it with them, what... What is wrong with us that we would not, wouldn't be the first thing that we'd say to people when we cross paths with people? And I just think that, uh, again, that this book is going to help you to be more, I don't know, more sensitive to those around you and the spiritual condition in people's lives instead of just the, what's right in front of you and the daily activities that we're all involved with. You mentioned a moment ago the role of the Holy Spirit, and I think sometimes we forget that it's not all on our shoulders, that we have to be persuasive enough, that our words are going to have to be calculated enough, but that there's a role that's being played by God himself in the hearts of those who are hearing our words. Yes, you know, God, uh, God's Holy Spirit does a lot of things uh, in our life, and one of those things is that he positions us and he will cross our path with the path of someone who needs to hear the gospel. And we'll either plant a seed or we're going to water a seed that's already been planted. But make no mistake about it, that that every day we have what's called divine opportunities, that God positions us, and he positions a lost person, much as the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, the evangelist in the book of Acts, he, he sent Philip to go talk to that man specifically, the Ethiopian eunuch, and he was an important treasure official from Ethiopia. Uh, He was uh, kind of in a high position. I'm sure he was an influencer of many people, and God specifically aligned Philip to go talk to that Ethiopian man. And I believe that God's Holy Spirit does that every single day. And not only will he position us 
he will he will empower us once we engage i i just know that god's going to give you the right words and the right the right response to questions that people may ask uh, he will give you what the bible calls an instructed tongue what i call an instructed tongue and uh, I, I think that we have to be aware, and when we wake up every day, we need to pray just this little prayer. And we just say, Lord, today, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing, but would you please cross my path with someone that I can share the gospel with? Would you open up a door of opportunity, a window of opportunity? And if we'll, if we'll pray that prayer every day, God, give me eyes to see what you see spiritually in people's lives and let me be a vehicle and a vessel and just use me. I am convinced that God will answer that prayer. He will set you in front of someone. You'll cross paths with someone and you'll sense it in your in your spirit. Uh, God will lead you to them. Uh, you know, I also think, uh, you know, the the uh, the Philippian jailer, he's there. And the earthquake happened, and the disciples were there and shared the gospel with them. Even in the midst of a jail cell, in the midst of an earthquake, God was still lining people up so that folks could be saved. Yeah. And I think God will do that today in our life as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in your book, Compelled, you write, uh, you mentioned the road to Damascus and Paul's conversion. What do you find most compelling about that story as a takeaway for Christians today? Oh, I, that's an easy question to answer, and that is that Paul would, would have been the last person. His name was Saul, of course, at the time, but he would have been the last person on this planet that you would think would ever become a Christian. He was actually on his way to persecute the church, and had you known him, and I would have been guilty of this as well, I would have said, that's one guy that will never give his life to Jesus Christ. And yet that's exactly who God reached and who God saved. And that man that we thought would never be used or could ever become a Christian, God used him to become perhaps the greatest church builder, missionary the world has ever seen. And so what that does for me on a regular basis is whenever I meet people, and I meet them and you meet them, where you think, well, that guy, there's no need for me to share the Christ with him because he's never going to get saved. He's he's too locked into this world. God could never reach someone like that. You might even have a relative like that, but you think God's never going to reach my, my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister. Listen, there is no one beyond the reach of God. That's what I learned from Saul getting saved yes. on the road to Damascus, uh, that we can never give up on anyone being saved and to realize that everyone, anyone can be saved. But we've got to be faithful to share the gospel and let God do his thing. Amen. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book titled Compelled, The Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith. And if you don't feel compelled, this is a great book to equip you and to remind us all of what a treasure we possess. And we need to share that with others. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Pastor Dudley Rutherford. He is the senior pastor of Shepherd Church. It's a 10,000-member congregation. And uh, we're talking about his latest book, Compel, The Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith. Your first chapter uh, is titled A Once-in-a-Lifetime Opportunity, and you share an experience uh, from uh, Dodger Stadium that really is a great object lesson of what we may miss if we, uh, if we don't seize the opportunities that God gives us. Yes, I can hear you. I didn't know what your question was, though. I'm sorry. Okay, that's fine. Um, I was just saying I, that um, the first chapter in your book is titled A Once-in-a-Lifetime Opportunity, and you share a story um, out of Dodger Stadium that really is a great object lesson of what we can miss if we don't seize the opportunities that God gives us. Well, yes, the very first chapter, and uh, I was at a Dodger baseball game. You know, there's 40,000, 50,000 people, and there's a, a boy sitting next to me who's about 12 years of age. He could have been 13 or 14, but he was totally blind. Uh, his eyes were kind of rolled up in his head. I mean, you, he couldn't he, – he was just blind. He was, you could tell he was a blind person. And he's sitting there. Uh, his mom is sitting next to him. And it's the greatest picture of faith that I have ever seen in my life. This little boy is sitting there in Dodger Stadium, blind as can be, but he has a baseball glove. He's wearing a baseball glove as though he was going to catch a foul ball. And uh, in the middle of that game, there was a foul ball that came in our area. I thought it was coming right to me. And I share in the book, I don't know if it was the spin of the ball or the Holy Spirit of God or the breeze coming off the Pacific Ocean, that ball began to curve towards that little boy. And I never thought uh, that ball was going to land in his glove, but I did think it was going to hit him in his head and kill him. That's what I thought. And that ball landed behind him, and it scooted. As soon as it hit, I mean, it, it missed his head by a couple of inches. And it scooted down about eight, nine, ten chairs, and some lady was over there with her boyfriend, and she wasn't really even paying attention to the game. She was eating popcorn, and she looked down, and right in front of her feet was a baseball, and she she picked it up, and she stood up. And there were some guys that were on the ground behind this boy kind of fighting for the ball. And I, I said, hey, 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 guys, guys, the ball is over there. And they all look up, and down there about eight, nine, ten chairs is this woman standing up with this baseball. So I was sitting with a buddy of mine. Uh, he's a preacher as well. Uh, his name was Ron Carter. And we were like long, long, long-time friends. I said, Ron, I want to go ask that lady if she'll give me that baseball to give to that blind kid. He's been sitting here the whole game in faith thinking he's going to catch a foul ball. And Ron, my buddy, said, "Let." he kept saying, let Dudley, I want to do it. The Lord is impressed upon me to go over there. And I said, well, okay. Finally, I agreed to that. We argued about who was going to go ask. And then I said, and I reached in my pocket, and I gave him $20. I said, if she says no, here's 20 You give her 20 Offer her 40 bucks and see if, see if she'll give you that baseball. So I go up to get a Coke, and he goes over to ask this lady. I come back. And he's like shaking his head. He's all upset, discouraged. I go, what happened? And he said, well, I went over there, and I said, lady, do you see that kid? Same row. He goes, you see that kid there? He's, he's blind. He's been sitting there the whole game. Would you mind giving me that baseball and let me go give it to that boy? First of all, she said no. Then he goes, I offered her $40, and she started to give me the baseball. And at the last second, her boyfriend kind of kind of – pulled the baseball back and said no. And then he said these words. He said, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go to a Dodger game 
and catch a foul ball. We're not giving it. We're not giving this baseball to the blind kid. So when Ron told me that, and I know I'm a preacher, I know I'm a Christian, but I did not have Christian thoughts when he when he told me this story. And I because I wanted to go say to the lady, lady, this is not a, a once in a lifetime opportunity. Is not going to a, a baseball game, and you're sitting over there not even paying attention. And a foul ball hits over here and rolls over into your lap. That is not a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. What a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity is going to a Dodger game, and a foul ball comes, hits 10 chairs over and rolls over to your lap, and you pick it up and you're holding this baseball, and you look over and you see a kid who's been blind his whole life, who's been sitting there, never seen a baseball game, never seen a baseball, never will see a baseball, and you have a baseball, and you run over there, and you stick that baseball in that blind kid's glove, and you go, here you go, kid. I said, that is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And then I relate that story to that is who we are. Many of us were just sitting over here doing absolutely nothing and not paying attention, and God, in his divine mercy and grace, sent his son Jesus. We were not deserving. We didn't, in no way, shape, or form did we deserve this. But Christ goes to the cross, and he dies in our place, and he places in our hands salvation. And what we do many times is we hold on to it, and we don't tell anybody. We don't witness. We don't share. There's nothing that's motivating us to share. And all around us, if you would just look, once you're saved, once you have this great gift, if you just look around, people all around us are spiritually blind. There are people who are lost. There are people who are broken. There are people who are empty. There are people who are searching for what, you, what God just placed in your hand. And selfishly, many times, we just hold it to ourselves. When part of the reason why God saved us is that we would be a conduit to reach others in, in strategic ways. And so that's why I tell that story. It's the first chapter of the book. It, it Again, it's it's called compelled. I just think there are many things that should compel us. Uh, you know, Paul said the love of Christ is what compels me mm-hmm. to share the gospel. And I just think that we should do a better job of understanding that God has graced us, and all around us are people who need that same grace. And that is what's most important in this life, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. In fact, you write about how important it is to do um, God's work above even our secular work, which dominates most of our thinking and our time and energy. Yeah, you know, um, I don't I, I think, Georgine, you know that not everyone's called to be a minister. Not everyone's called to talk on the radio, to serve in a church as far as in a leadership position. But we, we've all been called to evangelize. Uh, that is not something that just the, the ordained clergy are supposed to be doing. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that every believer is to be letting your light shine. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, it was for, to go make disciples and baptize them, and then to teach them, those disciples, to go and continue out uh, this, this Great Commission. And so... It's uh, sometimes people are torn that they say, "Hey, I'm in a secular job. I can't, I can't witness the way you do. You're a pastor. You can stand up and preach in front of you know thousands of people." But 
I think God has called you to work where you're working. God has called you to be in the school that you're in. God has called you to be in that work that workforce because he needs you to be his hands and his feet. He's called you to be a missionary in that school or at that place of employment. And I think that that people would have a greater sense of accomplishment and a greatest a greater sense of purpose if they realize that God has called me to work where I work. Yes, I go and I do my my 8 to 5 or my 9 to 5 job, but to realize that your job there beyond the secular job of providing for your family that God has placed people in your sphere of influence that you can share Christ with or give them a bible or tell them you're praying for them or ask them is there something I can pray? You can invite them to your church. You can Again, send, get a copy of the message that you heard last Sunday. You can say, hey, you should listen to this Georgine lady on the radio. She's really, really good. Uh, there's a lot of ways that you can plant seeds in people's life, but the secular job is an important job because I don't think God wants to pull us all out of where we work. I think he wants us working where we work. And sometimes I think that people expect me as a preacher to share the gospel because they said, that's your job. But when they hear it from a fellow employee or a coworker, I think oftentimes it has a greater impact in their life because they think this is real. I know this person. I've seen the change in this person. This person does act like different than everyone else around this place. And what are those changes in your, what, what, why are you different than everybody else? I think there's a compelling reason to stay where you are and to work at that job and to realize that God has called you to be there and to be his voice and to be his hands and to be his feet. Absolutely. In fact, I recall in Scripture it says something about that uh, you equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, that the pastor isn't going to be in your office. He's not going to be at the places that you (laughs) tend to frequent. That's what you're equipping us to do. And your book really provides us with some practical ways to do that and to remind us why we should feel compelled. We are compelled to do that because of the love of Christ. Again, the book is titled Compelled, the Irresistible Call to Share Your Faith. It includes discussion questions after each chapter that can help you make it practical. And I believe as uh, Pastor Pastor Rutherford said, if we begin to ask God for opportunities, he is just waiting to open doors for us and help us to see and hear as he does so that we can be effective in sharing our faith. Pastor, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. It was a joy and a privilege and an honor. I'll be praying for you and all those who are listening that we'll get out there and share our faith as often as we can. Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor. God bless. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Pastor Rich Jones. Today, of course, the U.S. Embassy was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And uh, lots of events surrounding that move and the decision on the part of the United States uh, to do what it has pledged to do since the 90s. In fact, uh, President Clinton said when he was elected, he would move the embassy Uh, President Bush said that when he was elected, he would move the embassy. President Obama said when he was elected, he would uh, move the embassy. Donald Trump said when he was elected, he would 
moved the embassy today. That finally happened. In fact, the law required it, again, since the 90s, but waivers were applied. Anyway, we're going to talk with Pastor Jones not only about the geopolitical significance of that move and the acknowledgement of the, or rather by the United States of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, but we're going to look at it from a biblical perspective as well. How significant is this and how should we view it in light of events we know the scriptures tell us are coming? So that's uh, going to be tomorrow on the program. So I'm really looking forward to that. Also on Wednesday, we'll talk with Welby O'Brien, author of Practical Help and Personal Hope for Those Who Grieve. Sadly, all of us at one time or another will grieve. Whether it's uh, someone very close to us we grieve or someone at some distance, it's a part of life. And we're going to talk with uh, Welby O'Brien about how we can do it well. Uh, Grieving is uh, normal, it's natural, but we want to do it well. Uh, on Thursday, we'll talk with Shanti Feldhahn. She is the author of Find Rest, a woman's devotional for lasting peace in a busy life. And for many of us whose lives are very busy, we may lack peace. We're going to talk about this devotional that can help us recapture what God intends for us to enjoy in our day-to-day life. Whether that means uh, jettisoning, jettisoning some of the uh, activities we're involved in or just seeking him in the midst of them, we're going to talk with her about that. A couple of things I wanted to mention before we wrap things up today. First, uh, First Lady Melania Trump underwent an embolization procedure today to treat a benign kidney condition, according to the White House. Mrs. Trump was uh, treated at Walter Reed National, Mil- uh, National Military Medical Center, and she will likely be in the hospital for a rest for the week, according to the First Lady's communications director. This morning, the director said First Lady Melania Trump underwent an embolization procedure to treat a benign kidney condition. The procedure was successful, and there were no complications, the director said. That's Stephanie Grisham in a statement earlier today. Mrs. Trump is at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and will likely remain there for the duration of the week. The First Lady looks forward to a full recovery so she can continue her work on behalf of children everywhere. Uh, Grisham says that she is doing well. A White House official says that the uh, president is expected to visit the First Lady at Walter Reed. The official told uh, news outlets that the president spoke with his wife before the procedure and spoke with the doctor afterward. The White House made the announcement less than an hour after the former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid's family said that the lawmaker underwent cancer surgery earlier today. Doctors removed a tumor from his pancreas and the uh, Prognosis for his recovery is good, according to his family. Last week, the First Lady, who's 48, unveiled a Be Best campaign, which addresses the well-being of children, social media, and opioid abuse. We can and should be best at education, uh, educating rather our children about the importance of a healthy and balanced life, the First Lady said during a speech in the Rose Garden last week. Well, last month, the First Lady looked... Uh, Uh, rather took the lead in planning the first state dinner of the Trump administration, welcoming French President Emmanuel Macron and his wife, Bridget. They celebrated nearly 250 years of U.S.-French relations. So the First Lady expected to fully recover but remain in the hospital for the rest of the day. Again, former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid is currently being treated for pancreatic cancer at at, uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. The former Democratic senator uh, from Nevada underwent surgery on Monday to remove a tumor from his pancreas, the family says. His doctors uh, caught the problem early during a routine screening, and his surgeons are confident that the surgery was a success and the prognosis for his recovery is good. His family said that he'll undergo chemotherapy 
chemotherapy as part of his treatment. His surgery was successful at Reed. He's in good spirits and resting with his family afterward. He is grateful for the highly skilled team of doctors and to all who have sent and continue to send their love and support, his family added. Well, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said he spoke with Reed's family after the operation uh, and uh, confirmed that they were in good spirits. Reed retired from the Senate at the end of 2016 after a 30-year career in politics. He announced his retirement in March of 2015, months after undergoing two rounds of eye surgery following a... Uh, um, well, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the uh, medical item. Anyway, that was New Year's Day, uh, an exercise accident at his Nevada home that apparently injured his eye. The accident happened when an elastic exercise band broke, striking him in the face and causing him to fall. Uh, His spokesperson said he um, uh, struck some equipment as he fell, breaking multiple bones near the right eye and uh, breaking several ribs as well. The 78-year-old currently serves alongside former Speaker of the House John Boehner as co-chair of the MGM Resorts International Public Policy Institute. In 1743, Benjamin Franklin observed, how many observe Christ's birthday? How few his precepts? Oh, tis easier to keep holidays than commandments. Mm. Franklin was mocking people for not practicing what they preach. Well, this insight is especially salient today. Lifeway reports Americans have a positive view of the Bible. Well, that's good. And many say the Christian scriptures are filled with moral lessons for today. However, more than half of Americans have read little or none of the Bible. The truth is that a growing number of Americans are nominal Christians, meaning they are selective, perhaps even hesitant about following the tenets of Scripture. There is extreme pressure to conform to secularist culture, which the Bible cautions against in Romans 12, too. Of course, you wouldn't know it if you're not reading it. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, the Bible is also increasingly considered more of an occasional reference guide than a daily resource for divine truth. These two points supplement each other. Nominal Christianity plays out in strange ways. As Peter Heck notes, and I'm quoting, it's a peculiar reality, to be sure. The same people who will get up in arms if you announce plans to remove a picture of the Bible from the public square can't read or identify much of what is in the Bible. It also results in the surreal instance of a church endorsing debauchery by hosting a, well, I won't even mention what kind of session, but trust me, it would not be uh, consistent with a biblical worldview. More churches are also throwing their support behind issues like same-sex marriage, despite scripture's condemnation, condemnation rather, for homosexual behavior. Steadfast Christians oppose cultural degradation based upon what God is revealing to them, which occurs through regularly consulting the Bible and, more importantly, living by its precepts. The nominal Christian response typically doesn't hear the fruit of the Spirit, rather bear the fruit of the Spirit. The millions of Bibles circulating the U.S. won't result in much influence until and unless all self-proclaimed Christians seek out and accept, uh, and accept rather the Bible's tenets with unwavering dedication. In other words, we have to follow, uh, we have to be followers, not pretenders. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So I wonder on this Monday following Mother's Day and a bright sunny day, whether or not you're a nominal Christian or you spend time in God's word with a purpose to following what he has to say. I appreciate the Lifeway study that puts it into perspective uh, for us. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Pastor Rich Jones, and we're going to uh, focus our conversation on what happened in Jerusalem today, and that was the uh, moving of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. There had been a consulate, a U.S. consulate in Jerusalem, and the embassy moved from its uh, offices in Tel Aviv 
to that facility. Now, whether or not there's going to be a, an official building made at some point, and many were predicting, well, it will take several years for this to happen. Well, not so, the, uh, not so this time around. So there will probably be a building at some point. But at this point, the official embassy of the United States government is in Jerusalem. What does it mean? We'll talk about that tomorrow. I want to thank James Blind for engineering and producing today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.